Welcome to the Learner.co Show, hosted by Kevin Horick and his fellow Learner co-founders. Listen in as groundbreaking leaders discuss what they've learned. Discover the books, podcasts, presentations, courses, research, articles, and lessons that shape their journey. To listen to past episodes and find links to all sources of learning mentioned, visit learner.co. That's learner with two L's, dot co. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Jeff Bennett. He's a scientist, educator, author, and speaker. Jeff, great to chat with you again. Uh, great to talk to you also. Yeah, I'm excited to have you back on the show. I think what you're doing is actually really innovative, but maybe before we get into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Well, I grew up mostly in San Diego. Um, nice. Had bounced around a bit till I was about seven years old, but then landed there. Okay, so you went to university. What did you take and why? Uh, so I went to uh, UC San Diego for my undergraduate, and I majored there in biophysics um, because I really loved the physics. Um, I loved the biology also, and uh, but I also loved teaching. I was working in elementary school while I was an undergrad. Okay. And based on that, right around the time I was graduating, Carl Sagan's Cosmos came out. And I saw that and I thought, if I want to be in teaching and education, I should switch from biophysics to astrophysics. So I did. And I went to the University of Colorado to get my PhD. And I've been living here in Boulder pretty much ever since. Interesting. So what got you interested in physics at such an early age? Well, I'd have to say I'm, I'm a child of Apollo, I think. Okay. Since I, I was about 10 years old when people landed on the moon for the first time. And... Uh, all the build up to that with the space program and that happening just really got me excited about space and space, I think, kind of naturally leads you into uh, science and physics. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. So walk us through your career, maybe some highlights along the way up into what you're doing today. Ah, well, it bounces around in some some sort of unusual ways, but I, I went to grad school for astrophysics at Colorado, and one of the things I did while there was a big educational project um, building a scale model solar system on campus, um, which we now have a similar model in Washington, D.C. and many other cities around, and uh, that got me to the attention of the university as someone who was focused on education. And so right as I finished my PhD, they were starting a new math curriculum. And they hired me to create this new math program called quantitative reasoning. And so I did that for a couple of years. And since it was a new program, I had to write all my own materials. And that actually led to my first textbook. So my first uh, college textbook was actually a math textbook. Um, we just had the eighth edition come out. Uh, oh, congrats on, that's huge. Yeah, thanks. And uh, they uh, then I got a chance to go work at NASA headquarters. Um, one of these positions they call a visiting senior scientist. I was brought in to focus on education and the astrophysics division. So I went there and spent a couple of years doing that, working on Hubble Space Telescope and other missions that are run by the astrophysics program there. And my job was really to try to bri bridge the gap between the research and education communities. Uh, so I did that and then I went back to Boulder and kept teaching and kept working on my textbooks. I also got my astronomy textbook started around that time. And uh, 
kept teaching until the early 2000s. And by that time, the writing was getting so busy that oddly enough, even though my main work is writing college textbooks, I'm not teaching the courses myself anymore, although I have co-authors who do. And so I have my college textbooks in astronomy, math, uh, astrobiology, and statistics. And then I, when I have free time, I write kids books or books for the public for fun. Okay, interesting. So do you get to apply any of the quantitative reasoning in kind of your work and, and life today and, and maybe even some of that into those kids books or not or uh, textbooks? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my textbooks, the, the commonality between them, even though they're in four different subjects is they're all aimed at non-science majors. Okay. And so a lot of times it's the same students taking those math courses and quantitative reasoning and the astronomy or astrobiology course. So you want to make sure everything's really well integrated and the same ideas, the kind of math you need for everyday life, the building a cosmic perspective so that we understand our place in the universe. Those are the ideas I want to get across in everything I do. So I definitely work those into my kids' books um, and my public books as well. Interesting. So do you want to walk us through some of the books you've written? Because there, it's definitely a unique take and, and how um, people have presented them. You have some pretty cool examples. So I'll let you tell them. I don't need to spoil it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, on the kids side, um, I have seven books now for wow. including the new one. Um, the first was Max Goes to the Moon. And uh, that had been something I'd been wanting to do for a long time. And finally, the opportunity rolled around uh, with teaming up with some of the people from my college textbook publisher. And the idea behind it was to try to get kids really excited about science who wouldn't maybe necessarily be excited to begin with. And one of the things when I was teaching elementary school that I recognized about science books for kids was they tended to sort of just be, um, they were pretty much pure nonfiction and a little bit encyclopedic. Um, yeah. Some of them had a little bit of a story that went along with them, but nothing that really took you through, you know, a, a fictional story, but presenting all the science clearly. So that was my goal. So I send my dog to the moon. It's the story of how we go back to the moon um, for the first time since the Apollo era. But I build in on the sides of the pages, these detailed science boxes, I call them the big kid boxes, to make sure that kids can, you know, enjoy the story when they're very young, but then as they get older, they can start to really understand the science in those boxes, as well as their teachers, and their parents might learn some science from those boxes that they can then answer questions that kids might be asking. So I started with Max Goes to the Moon, then I did Max Goes to Mars, and Max Goes to Jupiter. Uh, then I did a book on global warming for kids called The Wizard Who Saved the World. And then I got a call one day from uh, a woman named Patricia Tribe, who had been the head of education at the Johnson Space Center, and an astronaut named Alvin Drew. And once they convinced me they really were who they said they were, they told me they wanted to take Max Goes to the Moon up into space. And I very said, cool. well, that, that would be very cool. And that was the start of what they started called the Storytime from Space program, which has now launched uh, 20 or 30 books by a variety of authors, including all of mine. Wow. And uh, the, they started taking those books to the space station and the space station people came to me and said, you've written Max Goes to the Moon, Mars and Jupiter. What about Max Goes to the space station? 
Oh, yeah. Okay. And uh, and I said, well, it turns out in Max Goes to the Moon, the opening scene is a parade where he's come back from the space station. That was just a plot device I put in there um, to explain why my dog was the one chosen to go to the moon. And so I said, sure, that'll be the prequel. And so I wrote Max Goes to the Space Station. Uh, then I wrote a, my uh, most recent until this new kid's book was one called I Humanity, which is the story of how we know what we know about the universe today. And then I have this new one called Totality on eclipses. Okay, so what made you decide to write a book on eclipses? Ah, so, um, you know, my big focus is education and outreach. And from a science standpoint in general, and especially from astronomy, there's really no bigger opportunity than an eclipse when it comes over a place like the United States. So in 2017, that path crossed over millions of people, you know, tens of millions more drove to the path. So all of a sudden you've got this huge media attention around an astronomical event. And so from my standpoint, that means you have an opportunity to make it not just, oh, that's really cool, I saw it, but to actually teach people something from it. So before the 2017 eclipse, I was looking for a way to really hook people in, uh, to spread the word. And it turned out nobody had done an app to help people find uh, their way to the eclipse and learn about it. So I decided I wanted to try to do that. I teamed up with one of the world's premier eclipse code writers, a guy named Xavier Hubier, who's he actually lives in France. So he wrote all the code. Um, I got an app developer. I helped them with the interface and put in all the learning content about eclipses. And uh, it was really fun. And I thought it'd be fun to write a book to go along with that. So that was the origin of, of this new book. Okay, very cool. So when does it come out and uh, how, pe how will people be able to get a copy? Uh, well, the, uh, the official publication date is actually uh, two days from now, the 14th, which I timed to be 13 months to the day uh, before the October 14th, 2023 annular eclipse coming across the United States. Um, and just briefly, an annular eclipse is kind of like a total eclipse, except for the moon's farther away, so it doesn't completely block the sun. You'll still see a ring or an annulus of sunlight around it. So it won't get completely dark, but it'll be really cool anyway. Um, and then there's a total solar eclipse on April 8th, 2024, which will be even better than the 2017 one. So that was how I timed the uh, the publication of this book to make sure people have it in time to make all their preparations for the 23 and 24 eclipses. And as far as where to get it, um, it should be available at lots of bookstores and uh, on Amazon. You can go to my bigkidscience.com website and there's a discount offer on there and links for purchasing it. So it should be pretty easy to find. No, very cool. So I'm curious, like I've always kind of been fascinated by by space and I, I think obviously like a large majority of the population, but 2017 seemed like almost everyone was interested in it. Do, do you agree with that? And why do you think that was such a popular space event? Well, eclipses have such a huge long impact in human history. There's lots okay. of stories about, you know, eclipses changing the course of history because they used to come unexpectedly, right? Back before people knew how to predict them. They used to be considered these very frightening events, right? The sun's disappearing right. in the middle of the day. 
And so I think they just have this long connection to human history that makes people naturally interested in them. They're also something that, at least if you're outside, uh, when one's going on, you can't miss it, right? You can go outside starry yeah. night and not really look up, which is what a lot of people do, particularly with city lights and everything else that make it hard to see things in the night sky. But that eclipse, you know, you can't miss that. And so there was a lot of excitement building towards it. Um, I think, yeah, like you said, almost everybody got excited about it. And I think there's going to be even more this time because there were many millions of people who traveled to get to the path of totality. And I think every one of those people who was on the path of totality wants to go back and they're telling every single one of their friends and family members. So I think we're really going to get an enormous turnout on the path of totality this time. Um, and of course, the rest of the United States, if you don't get to travel, you'll still have a partial eclipse on both of those dates in, in uh, October 2023 and April 2024. Right. No, that, that makes sense. So when you talk to adults and kids about space or science or kind of anything related to all the stuff you've written about and you, you know, written textbooks around, is your approach kind of the same, different, a bit of bit, a bit of both, and and kind of why? Uh, it's really the same basic approach. It's just a matter okay. of um, adjusting the level that you're presenting that it at. But um, you know, one of my mantras about teaching is brains are brains, and sometimes we get people who think teaching adults is very different from teaching kids. But the learning process, whatever goes on physiologically in the brain when you learn something, has to be the same. It might happen easier in younger kids than in 90-year-olds, but it's still the same process going on in the brain. And so to get someone to learn something, you can't just present what you want them to learn, the content. You also have to present it in a way that makes them want to learn it, which is what I call the perspective piece. And that's because I think that you learn something or you're excited about learning something when it makes you go, oh, wow, I never thought of that before. So it changes your perspective. And then it should also inspire you to go further. So I always think of it as education, perspective, and, and inspiration as the three pillars of how you teach successfully. So I'm going to do the same thing, whether I'm talking to young kids or to people at a retirement home, which I do often as well. Okay, so can you maybe walk us through why obviously kids learn probably faster in a lot of cases some of the stuff than we do as maybe adults? Yeah, I mean, that's actually a really good question and the subject of, of lots of research. But um, my personal guess is just that, you know, their, their brains are sort of less full, right? So they're right. It's easier for them to absorb the, the new information. But Again, you're still going to go through the same process ultimately to to learn something. And then the uh, converse to that is that adults have more background information. So when I'm speaking to adults, I can sort of assume that there's things that they know that when I'm speaking to kids, I can't assume that they're already going to know. Right. But then when you're talking to adults, how do you make sure you're not kind of like talking over or kind of like a over somebody's head or kind of insulting them by, you know, <laughs> kind of talking to them like they're a child. Uh, so those are the things that you want to avoid, right? Both those sure. two things. And so basically you have to be conscious about 
avoiding them. So make sure that you always review everything that is prerequisite information, even if it's just a very brief thing, like, you know, the sun is a star. If you don't say that and you assume people know it, they might not. If you say, you know, the sun is a star, um, some people might not have known it and now they do know. So they're on the same page with you. And those people who already did know it are like, well, you said, you know it, you didn't insult me, right? right. Um, you, you complimented me on what I already know. So it's that type of approach that I think can reach people in a way that comes across so that they get all brought up to speed, but it doesn't sound condescending to anyone. Right. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I'm curious then, because you've been doing this for so long and you've written stuff for obviously so many different age ranges, um, walk me through some advice that you would give to people as maybe like earlier in their writing career or stuff you wish you knew earlier because we like as people that have written books before it's really really challenging and very very time consuming are you talking on the writing side or uh, generally or on the science writing side well probably both really okay yeah if it's well, different yeah the, the for the science writing side um i have a book called on teaching science and i lay out kind of strategies for teaching and writing is really a form of teaching at least when you're doing it for a science writing thing. So I would follow those strategies. For example, focus always on the big pic picture. Don't get lost in the details. Make sure your audience always knows what's the goal that you're aiming at as they read along as you're writing for them. Um, make sure that you always start with concrete examples before you go to a abstractions because the brain works that way. We learn concretely first and then learn to abstract later. Don't use jargon that people aren't going to be familiar with. Uh, don't use acronyms because people have to translate those in their head even once they're familiar with them. So just spell it out if you're writing. From a more general writing perspective, you know, I think that the key is just you have to get disciplined to get things done, right? The easiest thing to do as a writer is to uh, get a block and not write. But you can always overcome a block if you say, I'm not getting up until I've done something. Um, and I think that's the way to go. And it, even if you do something that's really poor, because you can redo it. And I go through so many drafts of what I write. Um, I don't think in any of my books, there's probably not a word in there that I haven't gone over at least 15 to 20 times by the time it gets published. Interesting. Okay. So I, I'm kind of curious, what does a, a typical day look like for you? Because you have so many things on the go. Oh, yeah, it's it can be interesting. Um, I'm, most of my day is spent at my computer writing, um, but I'm often juggling several books at once this year for odd timing reasons, all of my, all four of my major subject textbooks were up for um, revision. And so I've been working on all four of those at various points over the years. So I have to juggle, you know, make sure, making sure I hit all my deadlines. And, uh, but it's actually really fun by switching between projects like that. I think it keeps me from getting bored in one or the other. So I'm always, you know, changing gears and thinking, and then I'll, 
throw in the kids' books um, where I can to do something like that, try to do some extra outreach with shows like yours or speaking at schools. Um, I, before COVID, I was doing a lot of uh, speaking at schools. By the way, I do have a free program for speaking at schools and communities across the country that's been on hiatus for a couple of years due to COVID, but I'm starting to back up and the information about that is on my website if people are interested in having me come. Okay, so, sorry, let's stop there for a second. Give us some more details about that. What? So obviously you go to a classroom or school and talk, but like, what do you talk about and, and how do people get in touch with you about that? So for elementary schools, I usually do two assemblies, one for the kindergarten through grade two and one for grades three to five. So with those two assemblies, I hit the whole school. Um, for this next couple of years, I'm gonna be probably doing Max Goes to the Moon with the younger kids and totality about the eclipses coming up for the older kids. Um, if it's a local school for me, you know, where it's a short drive, I'll just do that. Um, going to the school and do those takes me a couple hours. If it's an out of town visit, then I ask people to put together a program where it keeps me busy. So I might do it two schools in one day and a teacher workshop in the afternoon and a public talk in the evening for grownups on either eclipses or global warming, uh, possibly talking to a college if there's a college there to the faculty about teaching to grad students. Um, and uh, yeah, on my website, um, it's, I think it's posted on both my websites, but on jeffreybennett.com slash events, there's the information about how to get in touch with me and the kind of program that I'm looking for if people want to put that together. Sure. So I'm curious, I, I know this is kind of a controversial topic, obviously, with like climate change and everything that's happening, but what advice do you give to people that are really want to make a difference? Like, what can we do at home, maybe on a daily, weekly or monthly basis to uh, to maybe like start caring about it? Because I think a lot of people want want to care more about the environment and kind of climate change, but they don't really know where to start. And I think a lot of people just don't really want to spend the time and or have the time to actually do the research to see what they can just do. Yeah, well, there's a couple things. Um, you know, the first is from a teaching standpoint. So for all the teachers out there, I think the key is what I like to call uh, teaching with inspiration and not fear. Because really, particularly with young people, but it's becoming the case, I think, you know, according to polls, the vast majority, uh, close to 90% of Americans now accept that climate change is real and it's happening to us. And the Com common reaction to that is is a fear-based reaction to think, oh, we're, you know, the, the way the media tends to portray it, our future is either bleak or bleaker. And that's not a very inspiring message for kids or anybody to go out and do something constructive. So you want to turn that focus and think about, okay, if we do solve this problem, what kind of world will we live in? And it's really a pretty incredible world because you don't have air pollution and water pollution anymore. You've got lots of energy for doing all kinds of you know, great things, eliminating poverty, going to the moon and Mars, uh, so many other things. So we wanna make sure that we teach the real science and the fact that this is a very serious issue, but also that it is solvable if we all work together um, to address it. And that brings us back to the other part of your question of what can people do? 
And I'd say there's two things. Number one, on an individual level, you want to do what you can to minimize your personal impact. So that's things like if you can uh, switch to an electric car or an e-bike or take public transportation and things like that. Um, if you can, if you can't, then figure out what you can do. And then secondly, all those individual things are great, but global warming is a global problem, which means we need policy decisions at the governmental level that will move in the right direction. And so for that, I'd say vote um, and make sure that your politicians know that you care about this issue and that they should be on the side of trying to solve it as quickly as possible. Okay, interesting. That, that's good advice. I, I, you said something that I want uh, clarification on. You said it could potentially end poverty. It, was that? Did I hear that correctly? You did. Um, you know, the, there's a, when you look at economic data and what's going on, what cause, why is there so much poverty in the world? And of course, poverty's actually been going down. The world's been getting a lot better on that front over the last uh, several decades. But really, the, the key to eliminating poverty in a lot of ways is energy. If you have enough energy to supply people uh, with you know, the, the energy resources we like to use to have a car, to have electricity, to have uh, fresh water, all those kinds of things, with enough energy, you can supply that. And most of the places in around the world where there's still high poverty are places that are also energy poor. They don't have that infrastructure. So by creating better, cleaner energy, we create the opportunity to address global poverty. Now, it doesn't happen automatically. You'd also have to put policies in place to deal with that. But without the energy, it's very difficult to deal with. If you have the energy, then you can, in principle, deal with it. Interesting. No, I, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's very cool. So why, like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here. It seems like some science and technology and stuff aren't taught in in every school or it's less schools. Is that true? And we need to do more or, or where are we kind of at in the education space actually teaching some of this stuff? Um, there is definitely a shortage of of science teaching. In fact, I mentioned that story time from space program started by Patricia Tribe, who had been the head of education at Johnson Space Center and Alvin Drew, the astronaut. And their main motivation for starting that program was research showing that the amount of time spent on science had gone way, way down as reading came up, right? And reading came up because we saw that there were literacy issues and therefore we needed to spend more time teaching kids, working on reading with kids. So that's a good thing. But then they were like, where did that time come from? It was coming from science. So they thought, well, maybe if we can put the science and the reading together by using science-based stories for the reading. And that was the whole concept behind story time from space, having astronauts read science-based books two kids from the space station. So we do need more science in the schools. Um, my own personal view is that the weak link is in middle school. And I guess I'll put a plug here too. I have a complete free earth and space science curriculum for middle school students posted on the web at grade eight, numeral eight science.com. And you can use that as basically your textbook for middle school earth and space science. It's all free. 
And uh, because I think middle school has been the weakest link. Elementary teachers have a lot of good activities. High school, it's a pretty set curriculum, but in middle school, we've been kind of dropping the ball a bit, not having good resources available for teachers to work with. And that's what teachers need. They need good resources. So that's what I tried to create with that project. Very cool. And we'll also post links to all the books and your resources on learner.co for people yeah. listening. So I'm curious, because you're so involved in kind of teaching other people basically all day long, what are you learning about that's outside of kind of science and technology and then maybe kind of what you do during the day? Um, well, I'm learning a lot of the science and technology all the time um, sure. because in order to be teaching other people about it and particularly for my textbooks, I have to be keeping up with, with everything that's going on out there. So I've been super excited about seeing the new images from the James Webb Space Telescope. Totally. That stuff's um, awesome. Do you want to talk yeah. about that quick just for people that don't maybe know what that is yet? Uh, sure. I mean, luckily, that's gotten great. Uh, media attention. So I think most people are recognizing those images now, but the James Webb Space Telescope is the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope, capturing already these incredible images, even though it's only been operational for a couple of months now. And we're just going to be seeing just astonishing things from this telescope for the next uh, decade or two. Um, and then there's Perseverance on Mars, uh, the Artemis mission that's been delayed and launching to, to the moon here a couple of times, but it's should be going soon. There's actually a really cool mission that most people have never heard about called DART, D-A-R-T, uh, that NASA launched a couple years ago. And it's going to try to deflect an asteroid by crashing into it on September the 26th. So just oh, wow. like two weeks from now, uh, about two weeks to the day. So be watching for that. It should produce some really great pictures. But the idea is uh, if you're if anybody saw the movie, Don't Look Up, you know, where an asteroid's coming at us, the idea behind this mission is to learn what we could actually do about it if that kind of scenario happened for real. Okay, so how, how does that kind of work? Like it's gonna crash in and hopefully change its course? Is it, it's probably more complicated than that. No, it, that's basically how it works. Now, the course change is gonna be very, very tiny, you know, like millimeters change in, in the position that you would get initially um, because it's a very small spacecraft and a relatively large asteroid. But it, the idea is to see, does it actually shift the course of the asteroid? Because one thing we don't know about some of these asteroids is really like whether they're solid or not. Um, it could be that the spacecraft, instead of like crashing into it and making it move, will just sort of sink in um, without affecting its orbit. So the goal is to see exactly what happens and the measurements will be precise enough that even though it's not a kind of shift that you'd ever notice with your eyes, the scientists will be able to measure exactly how much the orbit changes and use that to inform future um, plans if there were ever a threatening asteroid. This is a non-threatening asteroid that, you know, we've had a, the NASA's had a fly out to picked because it's non-threatening and easy to to do this mission with. So is it just kind of a, basically a trial mission in case we actually need to move one in the future so it doesn't hit Earth? Is that, is that kind of what they're trying that, to do that's, here? That's exactly what it is. The, the Actually, the office at NASA that's responsible for this mission is called the Planetary Defense um, Office. So it's basically their job is to figure out how do we protect the planet 
um, if we ever find an asteroid coming at us. Okay, no, that's interesting. So Greg, John, and I were talking kind of earlier before um, you got on about a lot of the people that are have read or will read your books. Probably some of them will end up in space at some point in their lifetime. Do you agree with that? Or what are your thoughts around that? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I hope a lot of them will. And, uh, you know, I think one of the things to keep in mind, like with Mars, for example, is we're probably still at least 10, maybe 20 years away from going to Mars. And when you do that math, it means basically the first people to walk on Mars are probably in elementary school right now wow. or middle or high school. So, you know, you should be looking at your students for all the teachers out there as the potential first person to walk on Mars and making them think about that that's a possibility for their own future. So realistically, in your opinion, how far are we away from, you know, maybe getting people into space or on Mars or, or what are your thoughts about, you know, kind of the average person getting into space? Well, for the average person, you know, it's a cost issue, sure. right? It, we yeah. have to get the cost way, way down. Um, you'll, if you go through my books, you'll see in a, my third Max book, Max Goes to Jupiter. Uh, when that happens, they get to their spaceship by riding up in what's known as a space elevator, which takes you from the Earth's equator all the way up to geosynchronous orbit. If we built the space elevator for real, like the one that's in that book, um, then people could go to space for a few dollars because it would be quite inexpensive in terms of the energy cost of getting up there versus using a big giant rocket to get you up there. Um, so I think it probably will be a while until the average person is able to go, right. but certainly there'll be some space tourism from wealthy people. And I think there's gonna be a lot more science uh, opportunities for, you know, basically NASA astronauts. You know, right now there's 100, maybe 200 NASA astronauts. I can imagine that a decade or two from now, NASA is going to need thousands to do all the things that we'll be doing on the moon and on Mars and so on. Okay, so what what do you mean by that? Like, like okay, you have a couple hundred people. Like, what types of potential careers? do you see in the future for the astronauts of the future? Well, I do think that we're going to end up with a moon base, um, hopefully okay. fairly soon. And I think there's a lot of important reasons for having a moon base. Okay. Um, you know, I think for me, the biggest is actually the intangible reasons. Um, I think it's very important that it be an international moon base where people from all over the world are working together. And I like to think of it as, you know, kids anywhere in the world at that point would be able to look up in the moon, which everybody can see, and say, gosh, we're all working together up there. Why are we having so much trouble down here? And that, with that thought process, people would learn to work better together down here, and we would have less conflict and war and more tolerance and openness um, here on Earth as well. But then there's also resources we can tap from the moon, you know, going back to that energy thing we talked about in poverty, another big issue for the earth is all the mining that we do that right. destroys the environment separate from global warming, right? Um, if we had plenty of energy, we could just launch missions to the moon, dig up the resources on the moon to bring back here, and then turn most of earth into basically a national park so that we're no longer having to tear up the environment that way. 
Um, going on to Mars, there's all kinds of things we could learn by studying Mars, including about the origin of life, finding out whether there is life on Mars, and then using it as a base to keep exploring. So all those things are going to take lots and lots of people, both in space as astronauts and on the ground, doing all the science, all the engineering, all the teaching, all the medical work. Um, pretty much any career can end up having a space component to it, if that's something that you're interested in. That's fascinating. That's that's really cool, actually. So how soon do you think we'll have like a little thing on on the moon that, you know, a bunch that you just outlined that a bunch of countries come together and like, are we 5, 10, 20, 50 years? <laughs> well, you know, that's idea? a great question. If you had asked me that when I was 10 years old, when Apollo 11 landed on the moon, I would have said five years. Okay. Um, and it's 50 years later now. Um, it's all a matter of uh, basically political will, because this is a matter of budgets and so on. I think okay. um, I would like to see it all done through international collaboration. One of the things that's actually pushing it along right now is international competition with the Chinese in, in particular and the Indians who are both talking about also building moon bases and Mars bases and so on. Hopefully, rather than just competing, we'll work together. Um, but I think the push is there now. And, you know, if things go smoothly, I would say within a decade, we could have a good operating moon base doing astronomical research from the moon, which I forgot to mention before. The moon is a great place to do astronomy from. One of the things that makes something like the James Webb Space Telescope so expensive is it's floating out there in space. So you got to design all this complicated stuff to get it to point in the right place. Whereas when you build a telescope on the ground, that's pretty easy to do and have it on a nice stable base to point. So you could build huge telescopes on the moon much more easily than putting telescopes out in space once you establish that moon base so you have people there to work on it. So it's a great place for astronomy. Okay, so then would you almost use it as a receiver basically and then send it back to Earth? Yeah, well, same way that the James Webb Space Telescope. Okay actually much further away than the moon is and all that information comes back via radio waves. So yes, you would send the uh, information back via radio signals to the earth, the way we get all our information from all our space missions. Interesting. No, that's, that's really cool. So I'm curious because you're, you've done so much in this space, do you have any other advice or predictions for kind of our future in space outside of what you just kind of mentioned? Well, I think that the, the key thing is we have to remember that space is something that we can do if we choose to do it and if we all work together in positive ways. I mean, one of the greatest things about space is, is that it's a positive use of our technology. It's not doing something to blow things up or that right. harms anybody. It's all aimed at the improvement of our understanding of ourselves and the universe um, and the human race. And so space is a very positive thing for everyone. And I think if we just focus on, we can do this, we can, instead of always having conflicts, we can work together to build a positive future. That's what I hope everyone will focus on when they're thinking about what they can do with their lives in general, and as well, why I think it's useful to go into space. Interesting. No, that's that's really very good advice. But we're kind of coming to the end of the show. 
So do you have any other kind of final thoughts or advice to people that are maybe, you know, either looking to get into the space or, or just, you know, because what you're doing is very entrepreneurial as well. Yeah, well, you know, I think the key, particularly for kids, is if you're interested in this, you've got to be well-educated. You've got to learn. Um, you, if you want to be a scientist or an astronaut, you got to focus especially on science and math, but you need to know everything. You got to also know the arts. You've got to know your, your reading, your language skills, your cultural skills, your understanding of history. So focus on your education. That's the, the most important thing. Um, one of my favorite quotations, my single favorite quotation is from H.G. Wells 100 years ago, and he said, human history is more and more a race between education and catastrophe. And I think that's very, very true. If we, with all the technology we have, we can do great damage if we don't use it in good ways. Right. Um, and the way we learn to use it in good ways is by becoming educated about everything, including, like I said, history, science, all of it. So become educated, learn to think, think critically, and make sure that you help us build a positive pathway to the future. No, I, I think that's really good advice. And you mentioned a bunch of free resources on your own stuff, and we'll post them on the learner.co uh, website. And there's a ton of also really good courses or material on YouTube and around the web. Fair to say? Yep. That it absolutely just make sure you find the good stuff and not the bad. <laughs> uh, is there any advice for kind of weeding out some of that? Because obviously, there's like you just said, there's good content and bad content. Yeah, well, the best way is to to go to sources that you know you can trust. Like if it's a NASA video, for example, right. or from the American Museum of Natural History, something like that. Uh, one of the things I did in that middle school curriculum that I posted that I mentioned. Um, is I did a lot of that for the teachers, right? I've already gone right. through and picked out the things that are legitimate and good to use in your course. So, but yeah, stick to the reputable sources. Perfect, Jeff. Well, how about we close out the show with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself, all the free stuff you mentioned, and if actual teachers or, or schools actually want you to show up in person and, and uh, do a talk and, and maybe read them a story. Yeah, the best place to go is the Big Kid Science website. So bigkidscience.com, B-I-G-K-I-D-S-C-I-E-N-C-E.com. Um, you can get from there to all of my various other pages. So the events page there has my school program for visits and so on. The books page lists all of my books. There's an uh, Eclipse page that lists our free totality app. Um, there's a link there to the middle school free middle school curriculum page so you can get to everything from bigkidscience.com perfect and and like i said we'll also link uh in in the show notes notes on uh, learner.co well jeff i really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show and i look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day man you bet thank you so much thank you Thank you for tuning in to the learner.co show. If you're looking to be a guest, try out our app or want to get in touch, please visit learner with two L's at www.learner.co. The music for the show is by Electric Mantra. Thanks for listening and keep on learning.